0: Episode 119, Nice Hat Harry. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a November 3rd, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org.
1: Well, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox head.
0: In the first half of the 20th century, the Panama hat was a symbol of power. Made from exotic materials of foreign countries, the hat was expensive and meant the owner was well-traveled. This simple hat found its way onto the heads of President Teddy Roosevelt, Napoleon III, and even helped fund a South American Revolution. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a Panama hat worn by President Harry Truman. Did this one-time Kansas City hat salesman take offense to ridicule of his favorite headgear? Then, we visit the museum's current exhibit, Cars, the Need for Speed, and listen to visitors tell us about their first car. How far does the love of a car go before it gets weird? Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, We connect White, the small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Queen Noor, the Dowager Queen of Jordan. Before she was Queen, she was Lisa, an airline employee from Washington, D.C. Did the future Queen of Jordan once serve White a bag of peanuts? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Nice Hat Harry. Good afternoon, Blair. Good afternoon, Merle. It's so good to see you
2: again after all this time. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs>
0: Thanks. Well, today we're going to talk about a tan-colored Panama hat that once belonged to Harry Truman. And uh, just so people have a little sympathy for you, you're, uh, you're going through some cold or some, some throat stuff yeah, right now, if, so, you, so you sound a little gravelly. If
2: I sound a bit off, it's... Blame my doctor.
0: <laughs> all right, so back to the Panama hat. Um, Blair, what exactly is a, pa- a Panama hat? I understand the good ones are actually uh, made in Ecuador. So why are they called Panama hats?
2: They're just trying to confuse people. Well, they're successful. Yes, that's good. <laughs> no, they are. The best ones apparently are made in Ecuador out of something called a, a, a tequila. Not tequila. Not tequila. tequila
0: right. Can't drink a your straw hat. straw
2: plant. And, then they get shipped to Panama for distribution, and instead of being called Ecuadorian hats, they're called Panama hats because they get sold and sent out of Panama for worldwide distribution.
0: Is there any connection to, like, the Panama Canal, or, or like, wasn't Panama a pretty big U.S. ally at one time?
2: Uh, it was actually, well, for a long time, the canal zone was one of our possessions, mm-hmm. actually. So that may have something to do with it. I'm not quite sure that it's really a a big factor, though.
0: This hat belonged to President Harry Truman. Uh, a long time before he became president, Truman was a businessman in Kansas City. Can you tell us a little about a little bit about Truman and his Kansas City connections, oh, both in regards to hats and maybe the more shady sides of Kansas City?
2: <laughs> well, you could get onto a lot of that with the Pendergast uh, machine that was in Kansas City. He really was part of the machine, although he was probably one of the more honest members in a lot of ways. And even Tom Pendergast sort of recognized that it was good to have somebody who was a little honest around occasionally. Mm-hmm. And,
0: Are uh, you talking uh, about Truman if, was kind of connected to the Pendergast machine, Pendergast being kind of like the mob boss of Kansas City? It, who it, it,
2: Tom Pendergast was a political boss in every sense of the word. And it was, Kansas City was his town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't get anything done in Kansas City without Tom Pendergast. A permission. And in fact, his office on Main Street in Kansas City, it's a second floor office that was technically the home of the Jackson County Democratic Party, the offices. But some people called it the capital of Missouri because of Pendergast power. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So where was Truman originally from? Truman was born in Lamar, Missouri, which is down closer to Joplin in southwestern Missouri. Did live in both Independence and Grandview at different points of his, of his early life, both of which were in the Kansas City area, of course. And so, Kansas City, he gravitates towards that quite a bit, and that's that's actually how he gets into the ha- haberdasher business, the men's clothing. I'm sorry, business. the what business? The
0: haberdashery. What's that mean, Blair? What, what's a haberdasher?
2: It is essentially somebody who deals in men's clothing. We'll make it as simple as that. I don't know the how the word forms, but is that French <laughs> uh, or? I'm not sure, actually, yeah, yeah. It's a fun word. Yeah. One of his connections is also through World War I, being the captain of the battery. I can't think of what number for the battery it was, actually. But he, that battery was made up pretty much of Kansas Cityans and people in the Kansas City area. And one of them is a good friend of his named Eddie Jacobson, who, when they come back to Kansas City after the war... They decide to become business partners in this haberdashery, and they do fairly well at first. They start up late 1919, and as I said, it may never have been a really successful business, but it was all right at first. But then there was a bit of an economic downturn in the early 20s, and they just really couldn't keep the shop going. They went deep into debt. Truman being Truman, in a way, uh, he was always very honest about wanting to pay off his debts. He didn't want to take any shortcuts. And he, it takes him about 10 years, I think. I think it's around 1935 when he finally pays off all the debts.
0: So he started a, a, men's, a, men's, uh, a menswear company with a National Guard buddy from World War I. Is that right? Yes. And didn't do so well? Didn't do so well. So he gives that up and decides, I'm going to be president.
2: Not quite. He goes into a political career eventually. I think that's when he does actually start making the connections with the Pendergast machine, and he becomes what's called the, a judge in Jackson County, Missouri. Now, that's really the same thing as a county commissioner is what it amounts to. In this case, it's not a But in Missouri, judge. they call them judges. They call them, them judges, yeah. yeah. It's Missouri. <laughs>
0: Perhaps the most interesting aspect of this hat is how it ended up at the museum, because it basically relates to an insult on Truman's personal taste.
2: Yeah, uh, the first of the background is is that in 1950, when he's president, a picture of Truman appears in the newspapers, and he's wearing this Panama hat. That's seen back in Kansas by a man uh, by the name of Frank Hodges who's an olathe lumberman. He's a bit of a force in the Democratic Party in Kansas, such as that may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, his brother, George, was governor of Kansas back in the 19-teens before Arthur Capper was governor. And he's not afraid to contact Truman. He knows Truman. They know each other. They know each other. Hodges thinks that he's enough of an expert on Panama hats that by just by this photograph, he thinks that that's a really cheap Panama hat. Right. So he writes to Truman saying that I've got a couple of Panama hats here. I'm having them checked out. I'm going to send them so you have a better Panama hat, essentially, is what he's right. telling him. Well, Truman is kind enough to take this, if it is an insult, uh, very kindly because he is getting a good Panama hat from Hodges. But he sends the other hat to Hodges, and when Hodges sees it, he realizes he was all wrong. Right, that the old haberdasher knew his hats apparently. Right,
0: right. he knew his menswear. Yes. <laughs> right? he may have had a failed haberdashery, but he knew his menswear.
2: <laughs> yeah, and the hat is very interesting because it does have the imprint on the hat band of a store in Washington D.C. Broats, which apparently got started in the late 1800s and was still going into the early 1980s. Wow, and was apparently a place where Washington. Society of Men of some prominence went to as a very good men's store. Uh, Hodges thanked Truman for this and quickly sort of apologized and the, for this because he wasn't expecting so good a hat and he said, I thought I was going to get a 5 or $10 hat but this looks like about a $40 hat. Uh-huh. <laughs> and nice he,
0: job, Hodges.
2: Yeah. But it, the one thing that's nice about the hat too is is that also stamped on the hatband are the initials HST.
0: Harry S. Truman.
2: Harry S. Truman. And also, Truman signed the hatband as well. Now, it's pretty faded with age from age now, but you can still barely see the signature on inside the hatband. And it's no doubt that it's Truman's. The donation
0: of the president's hat caught the attention of some uh, local newspapermen. Uh, one in particular seems to not be a fan of Truman at all. Um, some of his comments were printed, and some of them are quite clever. Can you share a few comments um, from the newspaper man talking about the donation of the Panama hat?
2: Yeah, it's a newspaper man named Verge Hill, who's writing for the Topeka Capitol. Newspapers used to have columnists like him that would write one-liners. And it's probably it not... seems a, like a good job to have to yeah, write one liners. as long as you're funny, yeah. It's, <laughs> they, people think you're funny anyway. It's probably not surprising that he's obviously not a Democrat because the Capitol is owned by, at this time, by Senator Arthur Capper. Right, Republican. He was the longtime Republican senator. Uh, But, yeah, Hill's comments, a couple of them go that one of Mr. Truman's hats now rests in the Kansas Historical Society archives, perhaps besides the shirt Alf Landon lost in 1936.
0: Right. Referencing Landon's huge blowout in the yeah, nineteen thirty-six election. he won
2: all of Maine and Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other one that goes here that gets back to him, I can use the word haberdasher again. Sweet. That's, yeah. Uh, the sample of male, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the sample of male millinery will be a reminder that a man who went broke as a haberdasher is now guiding the whole country in the same direction. <laughs> Some well, things never change, you know? It's, <laughs>
0: it really actually does sound, sound a lot like the same kind of verbiage we hear. Now. Yeah. Geez, hard on the guy. Truman paid off all his
2: debts. Yes, he did. He was very honest, but uh, in some ways, in spite of being tied in with the Pendergast. But...
0: All right, Blair, finally, I'm going to play a little game I like to call famous hats. So here's the shtick I'll name the hat style, and you name the historical figure most associated with that style. Um, and we'll start out with the gutra, which is kind of you didn't the. You
2: watch your language.
0: <laughs> it's pretty gutra, uh, which is kind of the checkered hat that you see um, uh, Saudi princes wearing sometimes. Oh,
2: okay, um, yes. Yasser you
0: know, Arafat was typically typically wore the hat. I
2: think You just stole my answer.
0: <laughs> I didn't steal your answer. What's your answer?
2: I, I would have probably say uh, Yasser Arafat, but you're looking for somebody a little more.
0: I'll tell you who
2: Oh, I'm. oh, oh, oh. I think uh, Lawrence. Exactly. That was my answer was yeah. T.E. Lawrence. <laughs> okay. Then we have... I had a sudden vision of Peter O'Toole. I was- <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> then we have the Deerstalker.
2: Oh, that would be our former colleague and friend, whose name I won't mention, who just killed her fourth deer with her fourth vehicle. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, now it's not the
0: four poor former employee
2: who often hits yes, vehicles. Yes, it's deers. Yeah, oh, that, well, the deer stalker. That one is actually kind of easy. That, that's got to be Sherlock Holmes.
0: That's what I thought of, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, finally, uh, my ne- or not finally, but my next one is the top hat. Who do you think of when you
2: think of the top hat? Peter Boyle and Young Frankenstein.
0: That's pretty good. No. <laughs> Actually, I typically think of Uncle Pennybag.
2: Oh, the, the, the Monopoly. The Monopoly man. Uncle, yes. It's.
0: <laughs> Finally, Blair, uh, my last hat, and you have to tell me who you think of when you hear this hat, the cowboy hat.
2: Cowboy yeah, hat, well, boy, that could be, gee, Roy Rogers comes to mind quickly, and just about every other cowboy <laughs> star. So. Will Rogers? I, nope, <laughs> no, Blair, they're
0: all wrong. The correct answer was J.R. Ewing. J.R. Ewing. Yes, Uh, that's the signature cowboy hat. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about Mr. Truman's Panama hat.
2: You're quite welcome. It's time for Kansas Quiz, where you have the opportunity to win nothing at all and still impress your friends with your knowledge of Kansas history. Like any politician, President Harry Truman made notes about those who helped him on the way up, including those in Kansas who assisted the notable Missourian. One of these people was a Shawnee County woman who was a bank president, active in the Kansas Democratic Party, and an early supporter in Truman's 1948 reelection bid. As a result, Truman appointed her treasurer of the United States, the first woman to hold that position. She served from 1949 to 1953.
0: Can you identify her? Now, we hear from museum visitors as we enter the Share Your Story booth. The small recording booth is part of the museum's current exhibit, Cars, The Need for Speed. Average visitors enter the booth and record personal stories of road trips, clunker cars, drag racing, and the like. Today, we hear a few drivers tell us about their first car. First up, Jennifer Tebbets of Emporia, Kansas, tells us about what seems to be the world's most indestructible car. Um,
3: happened 10 years ago in Emporia. My first car was a 1983 Oldsmobile, Oldsmobile Cutlass Callus. And it was burgundy red. And it was an automatic on the floor. And it was called the bill. <laughs> and it was burgundy all over. And when I first got it, I had to replace the window in the back. And it was dented. But it was like a full metal car. And it was like made of steel. And when I had to um, get it to go, I had to floor the gas every now and then just to keep it going. And... Um, that car and I went through everything together. We flew the streets of Emporia. We, um, I did wreck it a couple times, um, but it still ran, and it was a solid car until I get rid of it. So it was my first and favorite car that I miss.
0: A car can become part of the family. Here, Royce Gilbert speaks about his relationship with a car purchased in Wichita, Kansas, 30 years ago.
4: Hello, my name is Royce Gilbert. In 1972, I had moved to Wichita, Kansas to work in Nichols' Honda Kawasaki shop. And I rode a Kawasaki 350. Uh, I was going to start college that fall, and my father thought it a good thing to get an automobile. He came to pick me up in Wichita. We lived in Satana and took me to Central Porsche Audi down on Douglas and was going to show me a car he thought I might be interested in. When he pulled into the lot, on the left hand side was a red Volkswagen and on the right was a white D Tomasa Pantera. And I told him if you're wanting me to drive a Volkswagen we can leave now because I know you're not buying me the Pantera, which was ten thousand dollars at the time. He told me to calm down, be quiet, and take a look at this other automobile. And across the lot was an Aztec Gold 1971 old GT with a 1900cc engine, four cylinder. That was my first car. That's the car he bought me and that was the car I had always hoped to get. It was an awesome automobile. German engineered and designed to drive on the Autobahn. It was not a fast accelerating car but unfortunately could drive much faster than a person should, Uh, easily do 130, 135 miles an hour. Um, I still have the car. It needs to be rebuilt, and my hope and my dream is to strip it down, rebuild the engine, and totally restore it. Um, That's been, this is 2010, 38 years ago. (laughs) Hard to believe, but that is my hope and my dream, is to totally rebuild it, repaint it and then take my wife for drives. We dated in that car, we had our first child when we had that car, and it quit running in 1977, I believe, Uh, engine problems, and I've towed it around all over the country from uh, Liberal Kansas to Omaha, Nebraska, back to Liberal, to Houston, uh, back up to Marion, Kansas, Tulsa, and now Alma, where it sits in the garage, and again, I hope to restore it. But that was the excitement of having my own automobile at 17 years of age. Um,
0: One should always buy American, right? That's what Jim Lears thought in 1981 when he purchased his Opal. Problem is, Opel is one of the oldest German automobile companies still in production.
5: When I was 16, we were visiting, or just before I turned 16, we were visiting my sister in Topeka, Kansas. And they uh, loved to go to garage sales. My mother and my sister loved to go to garage sales. And so they came back all excited from a garage sale and told my dad and I that uh, they had found a car for me to to purchase. They were all excited. And so they took my dad and I to the. To the garage sale and we saw an Opal 1900 it was a light blue four-door and uh, they were all excited about it I wasn't quite as excited about it um, but uh, since my dad was very uh, very adamant that we buy an American-made car he was very glad that he saw the uh, uh, Opal name and uh, thought that it was a was a good purchase and it seemed to be in good condition and so we went ahead and and got it for about nine hundred dollars and I drove it for many years, and we, we, took, it, we took it home right away. And uh, as I recall, I, I opened up the, the guidebook to start uh, reading some of it and, and realized all of a sudden it looked an awful lot like my uh, sister's Volkswagens. And uh, so uh, we were, he was sort of surprised that we were, had bought a uh, German-made car, but it was uh, served me all the way through high school and had a lot of great memories from it.
2: I'm Blair Tarr, and I am back with the answer to the Kansas Quiz question. If you guessed Georgia niece Clark Gray, congratulations! Your friends will be truly impressed. You'll probably still have to buy them drinks, however. Gray was from Richland in southeastern Shawnee County where her father, Albert Niece, was a farmer and prominent businessman who owned the local bank, general store, lumber yard, insurance agency, and much real estate. Georgia herself had an interesting career. She attended what is now Washburn University, majoring in economics, but also active in the college theater. She aspired to be an actress, and in the 1920s, she went to New York and pursued an acting career for 10 years, meeting performers such as Helen Hayes and Charlie Chaplin. As her career stalled out in the early 30s, however, she returned to Richland to work for her father in the bank and also to take care of him in his failing health. Upon his death in 1937, she inherited the businesses he owned and became the bank president. She also became active in the Kansas Democratic Party and was a national committee member. This helped lead her to the appointment as treasurer of the United States.
0: And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William a. White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Tour's Coordinator, Abby Perrin. Hi. This week, we are connecting William Allawhite to Queen Noor, the Dowager Queen, not Queen Mum, mm. of Jordan. Abby, uh, would you like to give us a little background on Queen Noor of Jordan?
6: Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, Lisa Najib Halabi was born in 1951 in Washington, D.C., and was the daughter of one-time CEO of Pan Am Airways and a governmental official under Truman and Kennedy. Lisa's grandfather, Najib Halabi, was a Syrian immigrant of Lebanese origin who worked for the Ottoman Empire before coming to the United States in the eighteen nineties.
0: How do you that that would look cool on a resume? Ottoman Empire.
6: <laughs> <laughs> yes, not everybody gets to put that on their resume. Yeah, from the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> I worked for the Ottoman Empire. Well, by the twenties, he was running a rug store at Neiman Marcus in Dallas, Texas. And after Um, Attending Princeton, Lisa became interested in the Middle East, so she took a job with uh, the British architectural firm, uh, redesigning the city of Tehran. Later, she worked for her father, designing airport interiors, but in 1977, she met King Hussein of Jordan while working on the Queen Aliyah airport which is an airport named in the honor of the, the king's third wife who had recently died in a helicopter accident.
0: Awkward, awkward I think. Awkward. A little awkward. Why yeah. would you
6: want to, I don't know, it seems like a strange decision to name an airport after your wife who died in a helicopter accident. Yeah.
0: And then hook up with the lady that was, redesi- that was designing <laughs> yeah. the interior. Yeah,
6: weird. But, you know, we don't judge, right?
0: I think that's actually the, heli- I think that's actually the airport where the helicopter went down.
6: Oh, God.
3: She, wow. Okay.
6: Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Even more awkward. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, Lisa and the king were married within a year. They didn't waste any time. No. <laughs> so she, bequeen, she became Queen Noor of Jordan and the fourth wife of King Hussein. After he died in 1999, Queen Noor became the Dowager Queen and made room for her stepson, King Ad- Abdullah II, and, she, and the new Queen Rania. Yeah, so,
0: wow. I, it, it was interesting just reading about the difference between a dowager ja queen, which is like the queen. She knows she's the queen, but she's not really connected to the person that's currently serving as the king.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, the queen, a uh, queen mom, is the mother of the of the current uh, monarch. You know, I just, I think that stuff's interesting.
1: It's um, as confusing as British royalty,
6: though. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's,
0: it's get all, get all based on a, it's street. all based on the British system. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a British colonial power at one time and so they're really similar.
6: All of these royal
1: titles just get so muddled in yeah. my head. Yeah, and throw in names that I can't pronounce.
0: Yeah. <laughs> forget about it. All right, thanks, Abby. And Nikayla, since you're having fun pronouncing names,
6: <laughs> I believe you
0: have a solution for, for uh, connecting uh, William Allen White, the newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Queen Noor.
1: I do, and I'll apologize in advance to any of our Middle Eastern listeners. <laughs> well, Queen Noor, as Abby mentioned, was the granddaughter of Najib. Halabi. There we go. First mispronunciation. <laughs> um, though he was listed as a petroleum broker in the 1920 census, Neiman Marcus does claim that Halabi opened Halabi Galleries, which was a rug and interior design store in their Dallas, Texas branch in the mid-1920s.
0: So that's pretty schnazzy, right? Yeah. Something at Neiman Marcus? Yeah. Doing pretty good.
1: Yeah, not too bad. Not any old rug store. <laughs> um the person who remembered remembered this was Stanley Marcus who was the son of one of the company's founders um, and in the 1920s Stanley Marcus began working at the family business and in 1950 he became the CEO well as any rising businessman, he wanted a nice home to live in so in 1935. Stanley Marcus and his wife commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to design a home for them in Dallas.
5: Mm -hmm. Um, Nice.
1: And they eventually rejected his design in favor of one done by a local company. But... Guess who else rejected a Frank Lloyd Wright design?
0: William Allen White. (laughs) William
1: Allen White, that's right. (laughs) William Allen White
0: rejected Frank Lloyd Wright. (laughs)
1: That's right, and went with a design by White & White, who's also a local company. So apparently Frank Lloyd Wright, not necessarily so popular with people living in the central part of the United States. I don't know.
0: Right, so Mr. Marcus and Mr. White both so... um, such refined architecture that they snubbed Frank, Frank Lloyd, Lloyd Wright.
1: Wright. Yep. Ouch. Awesome. Poor Frank Lloyd Wright. I bet he cried every day
0: over that. <laughs> I bet that he did not nice. even think about it
1: twice. <laughs> He's probably like William Allen, who? Yeah. He's
0: like, can I build it over a, over a waterfall? And I don't care. All right. Nice job, Michaela. Abby, would you like to give us a challenge for the next episode?
6: Well, sure. For the next episode, we will attempt to connect William Allen White to the Roscoe Wind Farm in Roscoe, Texas. It's considered the world's largest wind farm. It has over 600 wind turbines that cover four counties in the panhandle of Texas. I just have a hard time picturing that.
2: That's
0: huge. Huge,
6: huge wind farm. This wind farm produces enough energy to power over 250,000 average Texas homes, which is, you know, like 500,000 normal homes <laughs> anywhere else. <laughs> All
0: right, so come back in two weeks when we connect William Allen White to a giant wind farm in West Texas. Who blew more hot air, White or Texas? <laughs> You'll find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. That concludes episode 119, Nice Hat Harry. If you would like to see images of the Panama hat worn by President Truman, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast page. The more feedback you give, the better this podcast gets. Make sure you tell us what you think, leave a comment on our iTunes page, or fill out a podcast survey from our website. Finally, In the next episode, Registrar Nikkela Zimmerman tells us about an autograph hound. Today, the term sounds like something the paparazzi uses to describe celebrity stalkers. But in the 1950s, it was meant for classmates to sign. Just when did the autograph become so twisted? Come back in two weeks and find out. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people... Real stories.